The Lord has used Samuel greatly. Legendary he's become as Israel's judge, priest kind of figure, prophet for sure, shepherd both ecclesiastically and politically in Israel. His ministry was great, but he has now gone the way of all men. The Lord assigns a number of days. Samuel's number came up, and the text begins with he died. At this point, there's a transition, probably in the heart of Saul, for sure in the location of David. At this point, David has been hanging out just to the left of the Dead Sea, just to the west of the Dead Sea. He's been in what's called the strongholds. Now he heads farther south into the wilderness of Paran. Why is he there? Well, he's a man on the run. He's a fugitive. Was he at Samuel's funeral? Probably not. It says all Israel gathered and mourned. But David probably wasn't there because he's running for his life. Saul probably reasons at this point, I'm so glad to be rid of that guy Samuel, and now I can finally be rid of Samuel's friend, David. So David takes off down into the wilderness of Paran, and there he dwells for a long time. And then he starts making his way up north, and in the middle there you'll see Maon listed and Carmel. That's where most of what happens takes place today. Somewhere in that wilderness region, David intersects the house of Nabal. Now today, I may say Namar, I may say Naboth, I may say a bunch of words that begin with N if my mouth goes faster than my brain thinks, but I mean Nabal. Who was Nabal? Oh, he looked like a solid, solid man. At first glance, he's got it all together. He's a man from the household of Caleb. And my interpretation of this is Caleb was one of those few spies, if you remember, that was bold and courageous, a man of faith. It was good to be from the house of Caleb. So he's from a dignified house. In addition, he was wealthy. He was a man of means. And he had many flocks, had, had many sheep, had many cattle, had many servants. He's a wealthy man. And he is a man who has a wife of inestimable value. A virtuous woman is hard to find, but he has found one. Her name is Abigail. It means my father is joyful or happy. And I've got to think she was a blessing to his life. She is a blessing to his life, as you see here in this text, even when he doesn't want her to be such a blessing. What a man, this guy named Nabal. The kind of guy that you would look at and say, Son, grow up to be like that guy. What a man, except it was all external. For when you knew his character and when you learned of his reputation, his name means fool. That's what Nabal means. And he was not misnamed. Even in the text, in the early passages of Scripture here, it says that he is one who's misbehaved and he's harsh. That's how the text describes him initially. And as we walk through, what are we going to see about Nabal? We're going to see that Nabal is selfish, insulting, worthless, foolish, unteachable, uncontrolled, and totally disrespected by his servants. And his wife, on the inside of her heart, knows how dishonorable he is. But Nabal's married well. 
married above his grade, above his character, above his conduct. Somehow he snagged a good one. Maybe his parents who arranged a marriage did him right. But we have the fool married to Abigail, who is described in the text as beautiful and wise, discerning or intellectual. As one female commentator said, her beauty went way more than just skin deep. She was beautiful on the outside and the inside. And this is Nabal's bride. David has met them. He's met their shepherds before as well. Their shepherds had sheep that were found uh, deep in the wilderness. And David and his men were not like Robin Hood, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. They did not plunder. They did not redistribute the wealth. They were not thieves. They were good to them, kind to them, even protective. You could just ask their men, and all the shepherds would say, David and his mighty men were so gracious to us. It says they were a wall of protection because we had Philistine and Amalekite hordes who had come down. And if you remember what happened at the threshing floors in the last chapter, this is what happens. But David and his men fought and protected and stood guard and protected Nabal and his flock. At this point, Nabal is on a business trip. Nabal, it says it's a good day in the Hebrew text. In your English text, it's translated as a feast day. For us, in our term, we might say it's payday. He's getting bank. And so Nabal has taken his flock, which David protected, and he's gone to a city named Carmel. They do this twice a year, and he's on a business trip. And there, they're going to shear the sheep. There, they're going to celebrate and party. And there, he's bringing home the bacon. David is a wanderer, a fugitive with 600 men that are around him, living in the wilderness of Paran, now making their way north. He could use some help. And it was a common customary thing that at prophet day, on payday, that men were generous and kind and benevolent. Kind of like you when we do our Lord's Supper, and then at the end we take a second offering and say, if you'd like to give some extra of what the Lord's given you just to help those who have need, please give such in our deacon's offering. So David says, I'm going to make such a request. Ten men he sends to Nabal. Ten men go to Nabal, and they greet him in David's name. They bless him and say, may blessings be on you, your household, and your prosperity. They then remind him, this is what we did for you back in the day. They made their point. <laughs> You're profiting today due to our sacrifice and labors back then. We just want you to know that. Part of what you're enjoying is due in part to what we've done for you. Could we have something from your hand? Could you grace us with silver, with food, with animals, with something? Could you gift us something? We won't even tell you what that needs to be. It's not like we're exacting pay from you. We would just like you to honor us and, and indeed just, just help us. We're people in need. They made their proposal and they awaited Nabal's response. Now, Nabal could have done what I do when people hold up signs and ask for food or hit you on the street. He could have just kind of walked the other way and not looked. 
occasionally I'll look the person in the face and treat them like an individual created in the image of God, which I should, and just say, no, thank you. I'm not going to give right now. Occasionally, maybe someone will give a dollar or a $5 or $10 bill or take someone in and give them a meal. Maybe he could have just really just been hypocritical and a liar and said, I'd love to help. Let me get back and talk to my people. I'll have my people talk to your people. The check's in the mail. None of that is what Nabal does. Instead, he rails at David's men, the text tells us, and insults David. Everybody knows who David is. He's Jesse's son, Samuel's disciple, Goliath's killer, Saul's exorcist, the spirit's songwriter, Michael's man, Jonathan's brother, Israel's healer, hero, God's best friend, and the Philistine's terror. Everybody knows David's name. But his response is, who do you think you are? He treats David as insignificant, a nobody in his eyes. He presents David as a runaway slave from his master, Saul. He presents David as one who is some nowhere man. Where did, what rock did you crawl out from under? And you expect me to give my money, my bread, my wine, my stuff, for my shepherds to you? There's no way this is going to happen. He rails at David's men and he insults David. The men then go back and tell David what has happened. How does David respond? I think this is a key to the passage. Every now and then we will have people around who think that they are beyond sin. That they are somehow so sanctified that they're not going to fall in a certain way anymore. We just sang that song, I thought I'd be over this by now. And they think they really are over it. David is Saint David. He is a man that has the Holy Spirit living within, and the Holy Spirit's not going anywhere. He's an Old Testament example of a New Testament reality that we have in Jesus Christ. David, how does he respond to dishonorable insults in the last chapter or even in the previous chapters? If you remember, insults come his way, he gets over it. Spears come his way, he forgives and gets over it. A man hunts him down and he refuses to take his life. He is an exemplary person in our last week's chapter as he shows honor to the dishonorable and says, I am not going to take vengeance and retribution into my hands. No tit for tat here. No reaping for sowing here. No karma here. I'm just going to trust my God and love my enemies. That's St. David. Is there a good amen? Now we have an old me. The same guy. The very next chapter. Here's of how he railed against his men. Here how he was insulted. And did you notice the words that came out of his mouth? Every one of you. Strap on your sword, get your sword, take your sword three times, and we are going to exact vengeance. You see the self-love, the self-honoring, 
the fact that he's going to take matters into his own hands to promote himself. If, if Nabal goes low, we go lower. Hit me once, God help you if you hit me twice. This is that idea that I am coming after you and he is now going to be guilty of evil, of self-promotion, of blood guilt, of unjust war, of murder. He's going to take his men, 400 of them that are following his lead, and he's going to help them partner with him in his sin. This is David, St. David. Amen, last chapter. Oh, me, this chapter. He's guilty of thinking, desiring, plotting, and pursuing evil. Now he wants to commit mass murder. He swears to God, by sunrise, not one of his men will be left standing. Wait, you've been insulted by one man named Nabal, and now you're wiping out Nabal and all of his shepherds? At this point, the Christ David sounds like the Antichrist Saul, who when he was slighted, he thought by Ahimelech, took out all his priests and the whole city of Nob, and here is David on the warpath, ready to wipe out many, many people. At this point, we are thankful for Abigail. To her, the rescue comes Abigail. One of her servants tells her all that's happened with Nabal. One of her servants tells her all that's happened with David's uh, servants and with David, that he's, he's on the warpath, he's on the march. 400 men are going with swords to murder, while 200 are left behind protecting the baggage. She's encouraged by her servant to take action. And this is where we see her intervention. I want to read this to you. I had fun writing this. Oh, man. I mean that. Oh, man. What a mess. One man is harsh, badly behaved, selfish, insulting, worthless, foolish, unteachable, and disrespected. Another man is impatient, irate, vengeful, hateful, and murderous. 40 other men are, 400 other men are about to engage in an unjust war, and Nabal's men are about to have their heads removed from their lives, from their bodies. She is not a man, but she's in a man's world. She is not one of the shepherds. She is not at Carmel with her husband. She does not hear David's men make the request, and she does not participate with Nabal in insulting God's friend. She is not the harsh, badly behaved, and worthless fool, and she is not the impulsive, offended one with spiteful rage. However, like Rebecca, who fought for the honor of God's chosen one, Jacob, like Moses' mother, midwives and sisters who intervened for him, remember Zipporah, who intervened for Moses, for, like Rahab, who intervened for her own household. Like Esther, who begged for all of Israel. And the Phoenician woman who went to Jesus' feet for her daughter and said, treat me like a dog under the table, but can you help my girl? This is who we see Abigail is. A strong, virtuous woman. Working hard like many of you, mothers and grandmothers and wives, as you intercede and as you mediate and as you think to, to work for and save the men all around you who are a mess, whether they be your husbands or whether they be your, your sons or your grandchildren, 
your women of intercession, women of prayer, going to war, doing whatever you have to do, even though it's not your fault. You're taking responsibility. That's what she does. She takes responsibility quickly to go to work for the men in her life. She will grace, she will mediate, she will intervene. Notice the honorable passive resistance. She's lived with this guy all his life. She knows his conduct, what he's just done in Carmel. But she knows his character, why he's done what he's done. She knows his will. She knows his authority. She knows that there's no way he's going to give gifts and honor to David because he's not given gifts and honor to David. But she will give gifts and honor to David even though her patriarch, the man who rules her social world in that day, her authority figure in that day says, don't do it. I mean, he's not explicitly saying don't do it, but he doesn't have to. But she will honor God. She will honor her husband. She will honor all of her servants and shepherds, and she will honor David's men by not doing that which her authority thinks she's supposed to do. There is a way in which one honors a higher authority and loves those who are wicked by disobeying authority. I don't choose to go any farther here right now. Big books you can read. I'm not an expert in this matter. We love to honor our father and mother. We love to honor authority. We love to honor even the dishonorable, as we showed last week. But there's a time for passive resistance. We continue on. How is she going to love? By working grace. You see, you have in David the picture of the Messiah, God's king. And all he asked for is, can I have some gifts and some honor? And her husband said, no way. She goes to work in her husband's name, in her husband's place, in her husband's stead, and gives him both the gifts that he could use and the honor that he deserves. That's what she does. She works for the one that she is interceding for. Kind of like Christ works for us and earns our righteousness. And then she didn't do anything wrong. She wasn't there, but she says, can you place all of his guilt on me? Please forgive me. She treated herself as if she was the sinful one asking for pardon, just like Jesus Christ works for us, his active righteousness, and then pays the price for us, his passive righteousness for us. She goes to work, working grace, atoning grace, but then in this case, this is where David's not like Jesus, she engages in restraining grace. Here we have the beautiful words of wisdom that flow from a woman's mouth. It is so good that she shared, that she counseled, that she taught, that she theologized to David. It was so good that she just didn't keep her opinions to herself, but that she dare tell David biblical truths from Scripture that would help shape his life and keep him from sin. And so she looks at David on this day, and she says, David, I'm here to restrain you. I'm here to keep you from sin. I'm here to love you. 
You need to know the Lord is your house builder. The Lord is your warrior. The Lord is your security. The Lord is your promoter. The Lord is your judge and avenger. The Lord will do all this and you don't have to take matters into your own hands. Trust the Lord. This is beautiful. This is exactly what we want is we want strong women. Even today, my wife looked at me and said, honey, you don't want to do that anymore. Something I did. Immediately, I was like defensive. She looked at me actually and then said, just say yes, ma'am. I still wanted to argue, but I remembered what I'm getting ready to preach. I'm a fool. Yes, ma'am. By the way, Laura would love to go on that hike with you guys this week. I'll be at the men's retreat, but she loves the outdoors. Sign her up. Her name's Laura Franks. How did David respond to a woman working, atoning, and theologizing with gratitude and repentance? This is the hallmark of St. David, that even when he doesn't look saintly, he comes around and keeps running back to that wonderful cross that bids you come and die. He knows the love of God for him. He always makes a mess of things and keeps going back home. David receives the admonition, the intercession, whatever word you want, the mediation, and he gives all praise and glory to God. Then he does what Proverbs 31 does and gives all praise and glory to the, the woman. It wasn't his wife yet, but it was a wife who had spoken choice words that he needed to hear. And what does he do? On the inside, he repents. On the inside, he is filled with rage, with self-worship. Something happens, and on the inside now, he is filled with humiliation, with regret, with guilt, with shame. And then he keeps changing on the inside, and he turns his face to the Lord who loves him. On the inside, he repents, which is what we do on the inside, which always then leads to some sorts of fruits of repentance. Don't know how long, don't know how much, don't know in what form, but the internal repentance leads to fruits of repentance. And in his stead, it comes out like this. He confesses with his mouth his new intentions and his delight. He confesses his guilt. He says to her that the Lord has kept him from blood guilt, from working salvation with his own hand, and from destroying her by killing all her men. He confesses his sin, and then the fruits of repentance continue, not only from lips that profess, but from feet that walk in a different direction. He will safeguard her. I skipped the part. He will safeguard her family for which she intercedes. He will do all that she commands. He will obey her voice, the text says. He will say, yes, ma'am and walk in a different direction, thanking God all along the way for the strong, virtuous, beautiful, intelligent, bold, courageous woman of faith who blesses all the men in her life. David, Nabal, David's men, Nabal's men, and her sons and grandsons. What a strong woman. 
She deserves praise and glory. So how does the story end? Well, it's a fantastic end for God's friends. Not so much for those who are harsh, badly behaved, selfish, insulting, worthless, unteachable, uncontrolled, foolish, and will not repent. Chad didn't read this to you, but I can tell you the end very quickly. She goes back home, and uh, she arrives, I think, maybe at night, and Nabal doesn't say, hey, where you been? What you been doing? Because Nabal's having a party. Uh, he just got back. He's fat and happy and rich, and he's having what's called a feast for a king, a royal feast for the king, and he's drunk. At this point, she says, you can't talk to a fool, much less an alcoholic fool. And so what does she do at this point? I just, I'll talk to him in the morning. In the morning, they get together, maybe around breakfast, and she says, I need to let you know that I got to go to the grocery store today. He's like, I thought you just went to Sam's and Costco last week. And she goes, I did, but I ended up giving the stuff away. What'd you do? Yeah, I sent donkeys full of food to this guy named David and his men. The text tells us his heart smote him, that his heart died. It became like a rock. Something happened. I don't know how emotional it was. I don't know how physical it was. I don't know how spiritual it was. Something happened, but ultimately 10 days later, he died. And everyone that's looking on the outside just went, poor man, must have eaten too much bacon. No, he doesn't eat bacon. He's Jewish. Must have, whatever. That's not my notes. We'll keep going. But the text tells us why he died. The Lord executed him. The end of the story is the man who is harsh and foolish and will not repent is destroyed by God. The man who is harsh and foolish and does repent, David, gets food. He gets a wife for he sees that there is this really smart, good-looking girl that he would like to wed. And he asks her, will you marry me? His other wife had been given away by Saul. Now he also gets the household and all the wealth. So David is still running for his life. But at the end of the story, God smiles on the Messiah and his family. So how does this end? Four questions and we're done. They're not long. Hang with me. What have we already learned about fools? I don't have to spend much time here because I loved how Scott played the role of pastor and shared with you from his heart that which Scripture says and called us to see our folly and run to our Savior. Foolish people are driven by their hearts. They deny there is a God. They're characterized by hatred, rude speech, dishonesty, arrogance, incorrigibility, lack of self-control, ungodly companions. They're uncharitable. They're Badly behaved, harsh, selfish, insulting, worthless, unteachable, uncontrolled, and unrepentant. And as we've seen in the text, fools are found out there with the Nabals and in here with the Davids. We are always sinful saints, foolishly rebelling against our God and His really glorious ways. Second question. How does God's love and grace restrain fools? Oh, you know that he does, don't you? 
It's like a governor on an engine that wants to run too fast, but they put a governor on so that it can't get up to the speed that maybe the foolish driver wants to go. Maybe like a, a filter that you put on your internet for your sons and your daughters so that it, it slows down their progress towards evil and doesn't quickly take them to the place that they may want to go. This is God in Romans chapter 1 who says, the whole world hears, the whole world knows, the whole world disapproves, dislikes what God says. The whole world substitutes and brings in their own ethical norms. The whole world then is like a, on a slippery slide to hell, to insanity. The whole world just looks and says, we're going to kick against the goads in last week's language or bang our head against the wall. We're going to come up with our own morality. There is no God. Maybe there's many gods. Maybe now we are God. We had God's laws. Now we have my laws. Now we have no laws, anarchy. We have the oppressive gender. Then we have no gender differences. Then there's no sexual differences. And finally, just change your sex because it doesn't matter. There's sexual promiscuity followed by sexual abnormality followed by sexual abuse. Uh, then in the church, there's ecclesiastical weakness followed by ecclesiastical acceptance. And pretty soon the church is promoting that which is sinful. And the slide goes from, from bad to worse. And God is the only thing, the only governor slowing down the progress with what we call his common restraining grace. He's not quick to turn people over to depravity. But if you keep wanting to go there, He'll take you, he'll take your country, he'll take your family, and he will give slack in the rope, or he'll remove the filter, or he'll take away the governor, and ultimately he will let you go head first as fast as you want to go into the insanity of hell. This is what God does. But God is the one who restricts and restrains. How? He gives every man a conscience for a while. He also gives us good government. That's what government does. Government is God's gracious gift to even the lost to restrain their sin. That's why it's important that you figure out who you're going to vote for in the next election, figure out what God's standard is, and love your neighbors best by voting for them that which is best for them, whether they want it or not. It's a means of God's common grace that restrains sin. How else does God restrain sin? Through conversion. Jesus Christ sees the lunacy, the insanity, the folly. He sees us say, no, no, no. And then Jesus Christ comes in and he messes with our mind and he opens our eyes and lets us understand truth. He messes with our hearts and makes us want that which he is offering He makes us a new man with a new heart, with a new future. And he says, come and follow me. And we look at him and say, yes, sir. That's how he restrains sin. He restrains sin on everybody externally for a while to some degree. But then there are some that he comes and he does that work on their heart and he restrains that evil then. And then he sends the Holy Spirit in who really kicks it up a notch with the conscience and refuses to allow you to enjoy your sin like you once did. Oh, you may enjoy it for a time, but there's always grief after it's over as you realize this is not where I'm supposed to be going and what I'm supposed to be doing. But how does God restrain sin? The point of this sermon is through people. 
This is what he does. The Bible says a threefold cord is not easily broken. So it's God, people, together with you that make a strong cord. With many counselors, there's wisdom. God uses people to keep you from doing that which is right in your own eyes, which is quite foolish. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. This week, I had a friend come into my office and say, I want to talk with you for a second. He sat me down and he expressed something that I had done or said. And he said, I just don't see how that's beautiful. That's wise. He loved me. He didn't hate me. He showed me a blind spot that I didn't see and was looking at me graciously saying, you don't want to go down that road. You don't want to be that guy. Why? Oh, of course, at first I'm defensive. But I was able to send him a text later and just say, I'm thankful to God. God gives us iron that sharpens iron. God gives us spouses like Laura, like Abigail. God gives us parents like Martha and Joe, who still to this day, mom tries to find a way that she can charitably and graciously ask me to just, would you consider, please, son, and not be so bullheaded and hardheaded? Because she loves me. Elders, they come Probably the elder that does this the most, and I mean this, in love. So this is not a degrading comment. He's a master at it. Out of all nine elders that we have, it's not you. <laughs> no, it's Bill Weathers. He's older than you. He's been doing it longer. But he does have this disarming way in which he comes into my life and has this ability to look at me and say, Jeff, so thankful for this and so thankful for this. But, and he doesn't say, but you know I love you. But he loves me sometimes by saying, would you consider this? He doesn't put me in the corner. Graciously, he gives me a way out to think and to process. It doesn't demand that I listen or even obey. Just wants to share forthrightly because he loves you and he loves me how I can be a better shepherd to you. And you ought to thank the Lord that I do have nine men like that, that can all, in their own ways, not at the same time normally, they don't look for opportunities to do this, but they love you and they love me and they love Christ enough to say, hey, Joe, slow down for a second. Let's have a conversation. They restrain me from more sin. And then I have friends here at the church. I mean, the names that I wrote down here, I, I, I don't think I should read them. Who just are my brothers, who don't think that I walk more holy than they do because my name is Pastor Franks. They're not impressed by that. They are impressed by what Christ can do through the gospel in the lives of his friends. And they absolutely find opportunities of joy to look me and say, Joe, together we can run towards Christ. So therefore, how does God restrain fools? In lots of ways, but especially through friends, parents, elders. That's what we do when we take vows for each other, by the way, that we will get in each other's lives. 
through wives. How ought we to respond? Third question. Psalm 141.5 says this, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let, his, let my head not refuse it. That's Psalm 141.5. We should respond not with defensiveness, not with excuses. We don't have anything to prove. We should not respond with arrogance like we already know everything and we're too good and smart to have to listen to someone else. We should respond with humility and never think that any sin is beyond the pale of what we can do. With reasoned consideration and with gratitude and thanksgiving. I take a moment, I speak to children, especially those of the high school variety, young men and young women. It gets hard for you to be grateful for the interaction of your parents in your life. They don't hate you. They love you. Can you be grateful and humble and respond as did David? Can you as a church be grateful and humble when your elders man up a bit and come at you and say, we just want to talk with you in love about something we see. We're not better than you. We're not judging you. We are just sitting here saying, we think Christ would have us run differently. Let's have a conversation. Friends, when you find other friends that are struggling with drink or with pills or with pornography or with some other addictive thing in their life, can you let them in your life when they want to get in their life, your life? And can you, can you be honest with them and be grateful? This is what we're going to do for the rest of our days. Be agents of grace by God. An intervention group of sorts. She was a one-person intervention group. You might be, but you might have to grab a couple friends as well but we're going to get in each other's lives. So how are we going to respond? With gracious humility. And finally, fourth question. How ought we to express the loving grace and restraint of God? Man, you can want to do the right thing and do it wrongly all day long. I could do a parenting Sunday school on how to do that. We approach each other with humility as if we are the chief of sinners, the biggest sinners in the room. We are not sinless, errant, inerrant, and without need of people to grace us. We show up with grace. Yeah, be selective. No one wants a nitpicky person that every time you see them or receive an email from them, there's a guy, they have something bad to say about you or someone else. Don't be that guy. Be selective, kind. How about this? Patient. They don't have to change right now. They don't even have to change at all. That's not your job. You can't change them. You just present and see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Sometimes he makes changes real fast, that Holy Spirit, but other times he is slow. If he's patient, you can be patient too. Sacrificial. Why do I say that? We need not think people will always respond well to our love. They won't. They'll call you a legalist. They'll tell you you're harsh. They'll tell you to mind your own business. They will talk about you behind their back. When you're just trying to love, they'll slander you, maybe to your face. But do it anyways. Sacrifice your ease and your popularity and your applause. I'm preaching to me. If you know me, you know I don't do this well. I withhold showing grace to you because I love me. 
I do it all day long. It's a natural demonic gift that I need a spiritual gift to overcome. I'm sorry. I want to be more forthright and loving. It's not my default mode. I like peace and happiness. I like to come, preach my little sermons, sing my little songs, and go enjoy my nice house until I go on vacation. Humility, grace, sacrifice, but boldness. We need not overvalue our own ease and comfort. Christ loves his sheep. We're supposed to love one another. Therefore, let's have less self-love and more brother love. And maybe, maybe then we will enjoy the process of sitting back and seeing what God did as we were running in the wrong direction like David as hard and fast as we could go. We found ourselves graced by God's kindness, His restraining grace through other people.